Hello, funny people. Thanks for joining me here today on Four Cents a Podcast. We're going to have some fun here because I've got something to moan about. Stay tuned. And now it's time for In Other News, the part of the show where I briefly piss and moan about something in the news from this past week. And Jesus tap dancing Christ, what a week it's been. Aside from the lapsing COVID restrictions, the big news item of this first week of June is easily the events, the worldwide events, as a matter of fact, following the death of George Floyd in police custody. For those of you who have either held your head under a rock, are total imbeciles, or simply refuse to watch television or follow the news on social media, George Floyd is the latest African-American citizen of this country, of the United States, to die while in police custody. If you saw when the story broke initially, the photograph taken of a very obviously white police officer kneeling on his neck and his Fixiating him to death. You will fully understand why the world is at present in an uproar. Shortly after this happened, 16 states, people in 16 states, began protesting openly out on the streets, marching and proclaiming Black Lives Matter. And with this renewed vigor has come an equally renewed effort to quash the efforts of the protesters. Some of the things that I've seen, some of the things that I've heard have plainly pissed me off. Probably the worst thing was the fact that uh, when one of the first demonstrations broke out here in St. Louis, there was actually news footage on uh, Channel 4 News, KMOV, that came through that showed bystanders, mostly white bystanders, pushing peaceful protesters into the police who were monitoring them in an effort to try and incite violence between the two groups. In addition to that, there's been footage that's surfaced from so-called saboteurs, these people who go to areas, go to vicinities very close to where protests are taking place, And what they do is they damage public property, or private property, rather. No, public and private property, because one person who was caught out and actually apprehended by people in the protest and turned over to the police afterwards was breaking up a sidewalk. I'm not entirely sure what city it was in, but he was breaking up a sidewalk with a pickaxe in an effort to try and make it look as if somebody in the protest had done it. And then another lunatic who was dressed head-to-toe in black garments, carrying an umbrella, wearing a gas mask, and I hope he's listening to this at some point and realizes that he is a lunatic for having done this, went to an auto zone, I believe it was in Minneapolis, and just broke windows and walked away. And some protesters, one of whom was catching him on footage as he did this and followed him with his smartphone camera recording this video 
asked him why the hell he did it, and the guy just said he wouldn't respond. He just he just did it because he could. This is, however, to be expected, because whenever protests like these break out to discuss this particular issue, which is an issue of systemic racism, anything, the, I should say, the people who are trying to quash this, these cries of outrage, they will resort to any tactic in order to silence or in order to divert the attention of the media on something else. Mainly because people don't believe, certain people don't believe, that systemic racism is a thing and that white privilege is a thing. They don't believe it. And I I don't know why they don't believe it. Because if you know anything about American history, you know that subject that's so poorly taught in universities and colleges and uh, not just, well, those are the same thing, you moron. But universities and high schools, they probably don't realize that this whole country has had a long seam, a great long seam of racism running through it since the very beginning. I mean, back at the Constitutional Convention, the original Constitutional Convention, shortly after the Revolutionary War, when they were actually putting together what eventually we now call the Bill of Rights, the original constitution of this country, the biggest debate, the biggest hot-button topic that was being talked of then was slavery. And everyone knew at that convention that this was going to tear the country asunder at some point. Is slavery just? And eventually it did, because of the Civil War. And then it took another hundred years after that for something even remotely resembling a true olive branch to get passed through the legislative houses of this country on a federal level. And between that time we had Jim Crow, which was a form of systemic racism. Denial of people's voting rights, even though they were American citizens, treating them like dirt, overly policing them, specifically targeting them in certain logistical efforts, like the war on drugs. It's all systemic racism. It's all evidence of white privilege. I think the people who get irritated whenever they hear the phrase white privilege uttered, they simply don't understand what it means. Because to their mind, the word privilege means, for lack of a better term, economic privilege. Somebody who grows up in such affluence that they never have to worry about money, that they never have to worry about the material concerns of everyday life. And admittedly, there are plenty of white people who grew up without such privilege. And there are plenty of people of color who do grow up in such privilege. You know, just look at Hollywood. Look at Will Smith's kids. They certainly grew up without having to deal with material concerns of the modern world. Yet I'm fairly certain that Will Smith and his wife, considering their ages, they both grew up in times when if they walked through certain neighborhoods, chances are they'd probably get the police called on them just because they were present there. Whereas Donald Trump kids... Donald Trump's kids. I can't believe I'm mentioning him on my goddamn podcast, but there you go. Never had to deal with that. And I'm sure Trumpy himself never had to deal with it either. That's the difference. Economic privilege versus social privilege. This country has always privileged white people more than people of color. All you need to do is look at history and you have all the evidence of it there. And you can say and you can claim that things have changed, things are better. I won't deny that they aren't better because they have improved greatly as time has passed. We're certainly not where we were at 200 years ago, 200 plus years ago, but we're still not far enough 
far as most people are concerned. And the fact that so many states, and Trump himself, have now called out the National Guard as a means of dealing with the protesters simply for voicing their opinion, for exercising their constitutional rights to free assembly and free speech, and that this same country is now turning the armed services their fellow, on their fellow Americans is abominable. To those out there right now who are continuing to protest, who will continue to allow their voices to be heard, as is their right, I salute you, and I am with you. To those police officers and armed guards, guardsmen of the National Guards, I beseech you, do not act rashly. Do not allow yourselves to make a foolish mistake because you will pay for it. And to those of you out there who are attempting to sabotage, undermine, and silence the protesters for exercising their rights as American citizens, I have three words for you. Go fuck yourselves. I wish that were all, but sadly it isn't. We'll be back, unfortunately, with more of this show after a word from our sponsors. A lot of people ask me how I think of stuff to put in the show, how I think of bits to put in the show, and the process is actually quite simple. It's really super simple. If I can do it, anybody can do it. Here is the process. What I do is I think of goofy shit, extract it from my head, and put it in the show. Again, I think of goofy shit, it's extracted from my head via some non-surgical means, usually by writing it down or just saying it right into my microphone. And I put it in the show, and that's it. That's the whole shebang. That's all I do. Step one, think of goofy shit. Step two, extract it from brain. Step three, put it in the show. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's it. See? Anybody can do it. Like most children who grew up in the United States, I used to believe that police officers were basically good. The last 13 or so years of my life, though, have really brought to light the reality of this situation. Don't misunderstand. I met some decent people who happened to be in law enforcement in some capacity or another, but my estimation of cops in particular has taken a serious nosedive. Those of you listening who've heard my previous episodes will know two things about me. One, that I didn't grow up with many of the hardships with which this country often saddles people of color due to my mother, a white woman. And two, that I'm a total wuss. As such, I never really had many opportunities to try and wreck my life by getting into entanglements involving cops. It wasn't in my nature, and had I done so, my mother would have beaten me halfway to death, and then allowed my father to beat me the rest of the way. In fact, my parents laid down the law regarding getting into scrapes with the law. One day, they sat my brother, my sister, and I down in the living room and explained it to us perfectly clearly. 
when you get arrested, my father said to us, and you're taken to jail, you're allowed one phone call. If the cops pick you up and take you to jail, and you take that phone call, don't waste it calling us, because we won't come to get you. He then proceeded to act out how this would work. You could call us crying, Papi, Papi, I'm in jail, come get me out. He then went through all the questions he would ask in the course of the call. What did you do? Who were you with? Are they in jail too? Did they make their phone call yet? How much is the bail? Etc., etc., etc. Then he said, I'll say, Mijo, that's pretty bad, and I could get you out of it. Then he paused for a long time. But you remember what we said, right? You land in jail, you're shit out of luck. See you when you get out. Click. The very idea of spending even one evening or two in jail terrified the three of us so much that we stayed out of trouble. We'd seen the Shawshank Redemption and assumed that's how jail was like everywhere. I missed out on so many high school parties for fear that someone would call the cops and I'd end up in prison. Fear was a big factor, but so was common sense. I was a fat kid who grew up into a fat adult, so I couldn't have outrun a cop car to save my life. So I just stayed away. I avoided any situation that, in my super imaginative, anxiety-riddled mind, could possibly lead to jail time. As such, I never encountered any cops in my life growing up. In a way, that was a good thing. This world is stressful enough without having to fear that some guy in a blue shirt with a badge that might as well read License to Kill instead of To Serve and Protect was going to midwife me to my demise. There was, however, one incident that I can recall. This happened several years ago during one of those early fall days that we have here in Missouri that feel almost like a second spring. It was cool, but not chilly, with plenty of sun, and many of the plants still had their verdant colors. I was mowing my parents' lawn. Yes, I know. Save your Hispanic landscaper jokes later, because I've heard them all. And I just about finished when I heard this really strange noise. It was a high-pitched blaring sound. Obviously, it was some kind of an alarm. And like the idiot who's going to die first in the horror movie, I went to investigate it. Turned out one of my parents' elderly neighbors who'd installed a new alarm system had triggered it by accident and couldn't remember his alarm code to shut it off. After figuring out who it was and where it was coming from, I just went back to my work. And having finished the lawn, I had to dispose of the lawn trimmings, which I always dumped in the yard waste barrel in the alley across from the, our house. So I went down the alley, dumped the clippings in the barrel, and as I was walking back to my house, a police patrol SUV pulled up in the alley, right behind the house where the alarm had gone off. Even though my neighbor with the help of the lady next door to him had managed to shut off the alarm, it had gone on long enough to notify the St. Louis Metropolitan Police, as most of these newfangled alarms tend to do. Since they had been called, the cops had to come and investigate, even though it was most likely a false alarm. So there it was, a cop cruiser between me and my house. I had to get home, so I just started walking. By this time, the lady who'd helped shut off the alarm had walked into the alleyway and begun speaking to one of the cops who was still sitting in the police cruiser, as both of them were. So I walked past the driver, a white cop, and started for home, when nine words brought me to a screeching halt. Excuse me, sir, can I ask you a few questions? I turned around, my anxiety already flaring up. The white cop, whom I'd passed, had spoken to me. I'd learned from others who had had 
incidences involving cops that the best way to handle this situation was to simply be polite and to remain as calm as possible. Dealing with a cop is very similar to dealing with a pit bull you know has a history of biting people. If you stay calm and make no sudden movements, nothing bad will happen. In theory. I walked back to the window and said to gave the standard line. What seems to be the problem, officer? What are you doing back around here? Dumping grass clippings? I lifted the empty lawnmower bag that I still had in my hand. He got this look on his face that seemed to say, Of course, that son of a bitch. Sir, do you live in this neighborhood? I had to tamp down my inner smartass and just gave him a straight answer. Yes, I live in that house right over there. I pointed to my house a mere few yards away. It was in that moment that another shudder of fear shot through me. Because I'd been working in the yard, I had no ID on me. It was in my wallet, which was in my house. And who besides a professional landscaper carries their wallet around when they're in their back pocket while they're working around their house? Still, I recognized the quandary. If he asked me if I could verify that, demand to see my ID, which a cop can apparently do at any time, I wouldn't be able to produce it. If I tried to explain to him that I could, but I'd have to get it from my house first, he might well take that the wrong way. You know what I mean? He might think that I was trying to get away from him because I had something to hide, which of course I didn't. And he might very well peg me as a suspect in this weird series of events that he was suddenly enmeshed in, this alarm going off. And he may even well have put me under arrest. After all, this cop didn't know me. All he saw was a brown person in a largely white neighborhood. In other words, if this continued, I was fucked. However, he didn't ask me that. He didn't get the chance. The woman who had been talking to his partner interjected and explained that the whole thing was just a false alarm. The cop then turned back to me and said, All right, go on about your business. And I walked home. I've been in car accidents. I've been in the vicinity where violence has broken out. I've flown in airplanes that had to land on airstrips that were too short. And I've been hit by a bus. But never in my life had I been as terrified as I'd been in that very brief interaction. When you're frightened of the people whose job it is to protect you from actual crime, and you're just expected to respect them because they wear a badge and carry a lethal weapon, that's a sign that something is wrong in the society in which you live. Terror, even involuntary terror, should not be a means of keeping the peace. Trust, that's how you keep the peace. Maybe our good officers could consider going through some training to learn that. This week on The Reader's Corner, I'm going to give you a reading from a beautiful novel by a wonderful American author by the name of Zora Neale Hurston. And the novel I'm going to read from is called Their Eyes Were Watching God. It's arguably Hurston's most famous work. She wrote, I believe, four novels. And she herself was a fascinating woman. I mean, she was involved with the Harlem Renaissance. She was friends with Langston Hughes uh, and many of the other authors who were affiliated with that movement. But unlike them, she wasn't really all that interested in sort of presenting an idealized version 
of African American culture as it was, or as it should be, you know, to to make it palatable to white folks. She wanted to write a novel and stories in general that depicted African American culture as she knew it, which was Southern culture. It wasn't overly educated. It was simple. But in its simplicity, she saw beauty. But to get back to Hurston, the fascinating thing about her, in addition to being a brilliant writer, she was also a magnificent anthropologist and folklorist. She'd studied with uh, Franz Boas, the father of what they call cultural anthropology, uh, which was a new field where you studied different groups and, uh, and different groups of people and just tried to get a feel for their culture and how it was different than, I guess what you would call mainstream Western culture. And the area that she studied in specifically was African-American culture. And as a folklorist, that's somebody who goes around and collects tales that are told orally and writes them down. As a folklorist, she managed to compile at least two books the one probably best known is called of mules and men or just mules and men but these are these are stories that she had she had heard growing up that she heard in the south that african american families told each other passed them down through the generations and she wrote them down compiled them it's incredible their eyes were watching god which is probably her most famous book as i said before is um a very strange book because on the one hand the poetry of the prose is palatable the, the sheer lyricism is incredible but what's also incredible is the fact that she manages to integrate in the dialogue the language of the people she's writing about which is southern african americans she doesn't write easy to read on the page dialogue and yet if you speak it aloud it makes perfect sense. She's using dialect, which was one of the reasons why a lot of people didn't like her in the Harlem Renaissance, one of the reasons why she eventually ceased her friendship, I believe, with Langston Hughes, or Langston Hughes ceased it with her, because they felt that to depict African Americans as these sort of simple folks who seemed to lack any kind of sophistication was to degrade them. And, of course, the whole point of the Harlem Renaissance was to make black culture palatable to white folks, and she was having none of that. She wanted to show the people she knew the way she knew them, exactly as she knew them, and to celebrate it. And she did that in this book. So I'm going to read you the first chapter of this beautiful novel. So here it is, chapter one of Their Eyes Were Watching God. Ships, at a distance, have every man's wish on board. For some they come in with the tide. For others they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now women forget all those things they don't want to remember, and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. So the beginning of this was a woman, and she had come back from burying the dead. Not the dead of sick and ailing with friends at the pillow and the feet. She had come back from the sodden and the bloated, the sudden dead, their eyes flung wide open in judgment. The people all saw her come because it was sundown. The sun was gone, but he had left his footprints in the sky. It was the time for sitting on porches beside the road. It was the time to hear things and talk. These sitters had been tongueless, earless, eyeless conveniences all day long. Mules and other brutes had occupied their skins, 
but now the sun and the boss man were gone, so the skins felt powerful and human. They became lords of sounds and lesser things. They passed nations through their mouths. They sat in judgment. Seeing the woman as she was made them remember the envy they had stored up from other times. So they chewed up the back parts of their minds and swallowed with relish. They made burning statements with questions and killing tools out of laughs. It was mass cruelty, a mood come alive, words walking without masters, walking all together like harmony in a song. What she doin' come back here in them overalls? Can't she find no dress to put on? Where's that blue satin dress she left here in? Where all that money her husband took and died and left her? What that old forty-year-old woman doin' with her hair swingin' down her back like some young gal? Where she left that young lad of a boy she went off here with? Thought she was gonna marry? Where he left her? What he done with all her money? Betcha he off with some gal so young she ain't even got no hairs. Why she don't stay in her class? When she got to where they were, she turned her face on the bander log and spoke. They scrambled a noisy good evening and left their mouths sitting open and their ears full of hope. Her speech was pleasant enough, but she kept walking straight on to her gate. The porch couldn't talk for looking. The men noticed her firm buttocks, like she had grapefruits in her hip pockets, the great rope of black hair swinging to her waist and unraveling in the wind like a plume. Then her pugnacious breasts trying to bore holes in her shirt. They, the men, were saving with their minds what they had lost with the eye. The women took the faded shirt and muddy overalls and laid them away for remembrance. It was a weapon against her strength, and if it turned out of no significance, still it was a hope that she might fall to their level some day. But nobody moved, nobody spoke, nobody even thought to swallow spit until after her gate slammed behind her. Pearl Stone opened her mouth and laughed real hard because she didn't know what else to do. She fell over Mrs. Sumpkins while she laughed. Mrs. Sumpkins snorted violently and sucked her teeth. Hum! Y'all let her worry ya. You ain't like me. I ain't got her to study about. If she ain't got no manners, nothing to stop and let folks know how she been making out, let her go on. She ain't even worth talking after, Lulu Moss drawled through her nose. She sits high, but she looks low. That's what I say about those old women running after young boys. Phoebe Watson hitched her rocking chair for her, forward before she spoke. Well, nobody don't know if it's anything to tell or not. Me, I'm her best friend, and I don't know. Maybe us don't know into things like you do, but we know how she went way from here, and us show seen her come back. Tain't no use in you trying to cloak no old woman like Janie Snark, Phoebe, friend or no friend. At that, she ain't, ain't so old as some of y'all oh, that's talking. She's way past 40 to my knowledge, Phoebe. No more than 40 at the outside. She's way too old for a boy like Tea Cake. Tea Cake ain't been no boy for some time. He's round 30 his own self. Don't care what it was. She could stop and say a few words with us. She act like we done done something to her. Pearl Stone complained. She the one been doing wrong. You mean you mad cause she didn't stop and tell y'all her business? Anyhow, 
What you ever know her to do so bad as y'all make out? The worst thing I ever knowed her to do was taking a few years off her age. And ain't, and dad never harmed nobody. Y'all makes me tired. The way you talk and you think the folks in this town didn't do nothing in the bed except praise the Lord. You have to excuse me because I'm bound to go take her some supper. Phoebe stood up sharply. Don't mind us, Lulu smiled. Just go right ahead. Us can mind your house for you till you get back. My supper is done. You better go see how she feel. You can let us know. Let the rest of us know. Lord, Pearl agreed. I done scorched up the little meat and bread too long to talk about. I can stay away from home as long as I please. My husband ain't fussy. Oh, uh, Phoebe, if you's ready to go, I could walk over there with you, Mrs. Sumpkins volunteered. It's sort of dusking down dark. The booger man might come get you. Nah, I thank you. Nothing could catch me these few steps. I'm going. Anyhow, my husband tell me, he say no first class boogeyman would ever have me. If she got anything to tell you, you'll hear it. Phoebe hurried off with a covered bowl in her hands. She left the porch pelting her back with unasked questions. They hoped the answers were cruel and strange. When she arrived at the place, Phoebe Watson didn't go in by the front gate and down the palm walk to the front door. She walked round the fence corner and went in the intimate gate with her heaping plate of mulatto rice. Janie must be around that side. She found her sitting on the steps of the back porch with the lamps all filled and the chimneys cleaned. Hello, Janie. How you coming? Oh, pretty good. I'm trying to soak up some of this tiredness and the dirt out of my feet. She laughed a little. I see you is. Gal, you look so good. You looks like you's your own daughter. They both laughed. Even with them overalls, you shows your womanhood. Go on, go on. You must think I brought you something when I ain't brought home a thing but myself. That's a gracious plenty. Your friends wouldn't want nothing better. I takes the flattery off you, Phoebe, cause I know it's from the heart. Janie extended her hand. Good Lord, Phoebe. Ain't you ever gonna give me any that little rations you brought me? I ain't had a thing on my stomach except my hand. They both last easily. Give it here and have a seat. I know you'd be hungry. No time to be hunting stove wood after dark. My mulatto rice ain't so good this time. Not enough bacon grease. But I reckon it'll kill hunger. I tell you in a minute, Janie said, lifting the cover. Gal, it's too good. You switches a mean, funny round in the kitchen. Oh, that ain't much to eat, Janie. But I'm liable to have something show enough good tomorrow, cause you done come. Janie ate heartily and said nothing. The very colored dust cloud that the sun had stirred up in the sky was settling by slow degrees. Here, Phoebe, take your old plate. I ain't got a bit of use for an empty dish. The grub show come in handy. Phoebe laughed at her friend's rough joke. You's just as crazy as you ever was. Hand me that wash rag on that chair by you, honey. Let me scrub my feet. She took the cloth and rubbed vigorously. Laughter came to her from the big road. While I see Mouth Almighty is sitting in them same place, and I reckon they got me up in they mouth now. Yes, indeed. You know, if you pass some people and don't speak to suit them, they got to go way back in your life and see what you ever done. You know more about you than you do yourself. An envious heart makes a treacherous ear. They done heard about you, just what they hope done happen. If God don't think no more about him than I do, that's a lost ball in high grass. I hears what they say, cause they just will collect round my porch, cause it's on the big road. 
My husband gets so sick of them sometimes, he makes them all get for home. Sam is right, too. They just wearing out your sitting chairs. Yeah, Sam say most of them goes to church so they'll be sure to rise in judgment. That's the day that every secret is supposed to be made known. They wants to be there and hear it all. Sam is too crazy. You can't stop laughing when you's around him. Mm-hmm. He says he aims to be there himself so he can find out who stole his corncob pipe. Phoebe, that Sam of yours just won't quit, crazy thing. Most of these zigaboos in this here over your business till they liable to hurry themselves to judgment to find out about you if they don't know soon know. You better make haste and tell him about you and TK getting married, and if he taken all your money and gone off with some young gal, and where he is now and where at in all your clothes and got to come back here in them overalls. I don't mean to bother with telling him nothing, Phoebe. Tain't nothing worth the trouble. You can tell him what I say if you wants to. That's just the same to me. Because my tongue is in my friend's mouth. If you so desire, I'll tell him whatever you tell me to tell him. To start off with, people like them waste up too much time putting their mouth on things they don't know nothing about. Now they got to look at me loving tea cake and see whether it was done right or not. They don't know if life is a mess of cornmeal dumplings or if love is a bed quilt. So long as they get a name to gnaw on, they don't care whose it is and what about, especially if they can make it sound like evil. If they wants to see and know, why don't they come and kiss and be kissed? I could sit down with them and tell them things. I've been delegated to the big associational life, yes sir. The Grand Lodge, the big conventional living is just where I've been in this year and a half, y'all ain't seen me. They sat there in the fresh young darkness, close together. Phoebe eager to feel and do through Janie, but hating to show her zest for fear it might be thought mere curiosity. Janie full of that oldest human longing, self-revelation. Phoebe held her tongue for a long time, but she couldn't help moving her feet, so Janie spoke. They don't need to worry about me and my overalls as long as I still got $900 in the bank. TK got me into wearing them following behind him. TK ain't wasted up no money of mine, and he ain't left me for no young gal, neither. He gave me every consolation in the world. He'd tell him so, too, if he were here, if he wasn't gone. Phoebe diddled all over with eagerness. TK gone? Yeah, Phoebe, TK is gone. That's the only reason you see me back here. I ain't got nothing to make me happy no more where I was at, down in the Everglades there, down on the muck. It's hard for me to understand what you mean, the way you tell it, and then again, I'm hard to understand at times. Nah, it ain't nothing like you might think, so it ain't no use in me telling you something unless I give you the understanding to go along with it. Unless you see the fur, a mink ain't no different from a coon hide. Look here, Phoebe. Is Sam waiting on you for his supper? It's all ready and waiting. If he ain't got no sense enough to eat it, that's on his hard luck. Well then, we can sit right here where we is and talk. I got the house all opened up to let this breeze get a little catching. Phoebe, we've been kissing friends for 20 years. So I depend on you for a good thought. And I'm talking to you from that standpoint. Time makes everything old, so the kissing young darkness became a monstropolis old thing while Janie talked. I do want to say one final thing before we move on in the show. Getting through that reading was actually quite difficult because doing justice to Zora Neale Hurston's 
dialogue and switching back and forth between that dialect dialogue and her very lyrical prose is quite difficult. So I did my best to translate it into what I think it's supposed to say as I was speaking it, which is not easy. It's also one of the reasons why this reading is abnormally long. But even with my bad reading, I still think it is some of the most beautiful writing in American English. And if you ever get a chance to read it yourself, and you'll notice as you read it yourself, if you listen to this recording of the first chapter as you're reading it, you'll notice all the mistakes I made. But I still think it's wonderful, and I still think everybody should read Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. It's a beautiful book. Hey, Bob. What? We kind of have a little bit of a problem. Oh, great. What is it this time? Well, uh, you know that act that we booked to be on the show today? Oh, you mean that dumbass ventriloquist and his stupid dummy? Yeah, well, um... They canceled on us. Why? Uh, apparently the dummy had an accident. Which one? The little guy. The, the dummy dummy. Oh. What kind of an accident? Um, he fell into a barbecue pit. A barbecue pit? What kind of an accident is that? Well, it was on fire at the time. Oh. Yeah, that's pretty bad. I know it's bad. What are we supposed to do? They're supposed to be recording their bit of the show right now. Well, just run another ad. We paid for them for that reason. Oh, yeah. Um, sorry, folks. We'll be right back after these messages. Hello, I'm Wendy McNeese. For 35 years, I worked as a teacher in the American public school system. I, like my fellow teachers, loved what I did. I loved educating and shaping young minds. The last decade of my career, however, my job became increasingly difficult due to one thing, which to this day continues to plague my fellow teachers, helicopter parents. So after I retired, I started the TAHP, Teachers Against Helicopter Parenting. Our mission is the mission of all teachers, to educate. The TAHP is a coalition of educators that seeks to show parents that, while they are their children's first teacher, in school it's best to leave teaching to the professionals. Anyone can be a parent, but not just anyone can be a true teacher. If you believe, as we do, please consider donating to our organization to help us put teaching back in the classroom without the hindrance of helicopter parents. Call in your donation at our number 1-800-703-8429. Again, that's 1-800-703-8429. Why should non-educators tell educators how to teach? The answer, they shouldn't. Help us combat helicopter parenting today and make teachers truly teach again. Call now. If you've listened to my piece, What You Need to Be a Good Retail Worker, in the episode Rant in Three Variations, you'll know that for one year, seven months, and two weeks, I worked as a retail clerk. More specifically, I worked as a deli clerk in a grocery store for a well-known grocery store chain here in my hometown, which I will continue to refer to as schmucks. I don't need any lawsuits at this point in my life. To give you a better idea of the context in which this period of my life occurred, I'll elucidate further. At the time, I'd already graduated from college with my bachelor's degree, 
And like any recent graduate, I went hunting around looking for work. I had just one problem. I couldn't find any. At least, I couldn't find any that was remotely related to my field. I was an English major. Yes, save your jokes. I know them all and find none of them funny. Eventually, through this long period of hunting for work and getting nowhere, a whole year passed. I became desperate. Finally, I decided that my only recourse just to get some money coming in was to take whatever job I could find, related to my field or otherwise. It was at that moment that a we're hiring ad caught my eye. It was for part-time workers at this grocery store. I was just desperate enough to fill out an application. They were so desperate for workers that I got an email about a day later to set up a phone interview. Although many of you listening to this right now might not believe me, I actually make a very good first impression in audio. I nailed the phone interview, and they offered me an in-house interview. With my bank account in need, desperate need, of a financial infusion, I elected to go. What follows is the first installment of another ongoing series of segments, which I call Behind the Counter, My Days as a Deli Clerk. In these amusing reminiscences, I hope I'll be able to shed some light on the not-so-pleasant world of day-to-day retail working. Keep one thing in mind, though. Whatever you may hear going forward in this series, keep this in mind. I took the job for one reason, and one reason only. Money. Maybe it was just dumb luck, but I'd never actually had to go through an in-person job interview before. I'd also never had to get a real job before. All through my teenage and college years, jobs of the -the under-the-table variety had just sort of fallen into my lap. So the day of the interview, I had no idea what I was supposed to wear. Overly formal seemed a little much, given that the job was a clerking gig. But I didn't want to just show up in jeans and a t-shirt either like some bum off the street. I figured I needed to look like I'd made an effort. So to be safe, I figured I'd go with at least business casual. A purple polo shirt, my good khaki pants, and my black tennis shoes. I didn't have a car, so I'd have to walk to the store. If they didn't like my shoes, too bad for them. I'd rather risk a disapproving look than a blister. If I made a good impression, I did know that I'd have to fill out some paperwork, so I brought some of my formal documents with me in my laptop bag. With a good 50 minutes ahead of time, I headed to the store. After stopping off at a nearby Starbucks for a reinvigorating venti mocha, I miss those days when you could just do that. I got to the store and walked over to the information desk. Excuse me, miss, I said. I'm here for a job interview. Do you know where they're taking place? She told me to head to the break room. At the far end of the store, in the frozen food aisle, I would find a single solitary black door without any kind of signage on it. That was the staff break room, and it was where any interviews would be taking place. So off I went. Sure enough, I found the door. It took me a little while to figure out how to open it. The handle didn't move much, so I initially assumed it was locked, and I was being punked. But one strong pull showed me otherwise. The break room had about four tables set out at which several people sat. Some of them were obviously employees on break. I could tell because they wore black polos with the Schmucks logo sewn into them with red thread. Others were wearing pedestrian clothes, so I figured they were other applicants. At 
the far end of the room, however, was another separate room with a door and a single window that looked out onto the break room. The light was on inside, and I could see a woman dressed in a pantsuit sitting there speaking to someone. Not too hard to guess she was the one who was sent to interview me. So I took a seat at one of the tables and waited. Thankfully, I had brought my Kindle with me, so I sat there reading. Every so often, I'd glance up at the big clock hanging on the break room wall to see time progress towards my scheduled interview. The door to the other room eventually opened, and out came the applicant. The interviewer quickly followed. She called my name. I closed my Kindle and stepped into the room for what I had assumed, given my lack of experience, was going to be a grilling. I was essentially there to sell myself, like a hoe. When you think about it, every form of employment, whether it's contract labor, wage labor, or salary jobs, are just prostitution without the sex. The only difference between the four is whether or not you have a pimp keeping you on retainer. The interviewer sat me down, sat across from me, clipboard in hand, across from this table, and lobbed her first question at me. Why would you like to work here? And I made something up. I knew I couldn't tell her the real reason. The real reason was that I needed the money, and that they were hiring. But you can't be blunt and blatant in a job interview. You had to keep your cards close to your chest, even though every single one of them was a dud, and bluff your way through it. Her next question came. Why do you want to work here when you... She glanced at her clipboard. Already have a college degree. And I pulled something else out of my ass. Well... Recent graduates always have trouble finding work, especially with the economy being what it is. She nodded, but the ambivalent look on her face bothered me. It was at that moment that I noticed something else on the table. Near her, she happened to have a copy of Suzanne Collins's book, The Hunger Games, which I'd read fairly recently and enjoyed. So I asked her a question. How are you enjoying that? I pointed at the novel. She glanced over. Oh, it's actually a lot of fun. My daughter's reading it at the moment, so I figured I'd read it with her. It's a good book for young women, I said. Katniss Everdeen is a character with a lot of agency and ideal protagonist for YA fiction and a good role model for women everywhere, at least in a fictional sense. Her look of ambivalence changed to one of curiosity. Do you read a lot? A fair amount. That was an understatement. When you're an English major, reading is a way of life. She set her clipboard down. What else have you read recently? I then went into this long description of a book called Revolution by Jennifer Donnelly. I'd read it as a part of a course on adolescent literature, and I'd thoroughly enjoyed it. It was one of the top two favorite books that we read the entire semester in my book. It was a great blend of historical fiction, contemporary realism, and fantasy with essentially two protagonists who, in a very strange way, come to merge to be one protagonist, or so you think. That's the nice little twist bit towards the end of the book. The interviewer sat there spellbound. Maybe it was just my enthusiasm, maybe it was my eloquence, but she was thoroughly fascinated with what I was saying. And from that point on, all we did was talk about books. The interview was, at least for a period, over, and a conversation had begun. Well, following this, after a good 20-so minutes, she finally went back into interviewer mode, lifted her clipboard, looked at me, looked at the clipboard, looked back at me, and said, Well, as a clerk, you'll be guaranteed a minimum of 20 hours a week. You'll need to be available on weekends, but you can decide when you're available the rest of the week. Would that be good for you? I said it would be perfectly all right. She handed me a W-4 
and escorted me out of the room. I have to say, looking back, for a first interview, I think it went rather well. Hey, funny people. That's it from me here on Four Cents a Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me here again next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and do try to remember to enjoy yourselves. <laughs>